This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Robert Olin Butler, author of Late City. Who the hell am I? That's the question we're dealing with, that literary fiction engages with. And that's the the question that every human being on this planet is at their very core, dealing with every day in almost every decision they make. We'll be back with Robert Olin Butler after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, This show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. 
and it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Robert Olin Butler, author of 17 novels and six short story collections, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain. He's also published a volume of his craft lectures on the creative process called From Where You Dream. He is the recipient of the F. Scott Fitzgerald Award for Outstanding Achievement in American Literature. Some of his novels include Perfume River, The Hot Country, The Star of Istanbul, and The Empire of Night. He lives in Florida and teaches at Florida State University. His new novel, Late City, tells the story of 115-year-old newspaper reporter and editor Sam Cunningham on his deathbed on the eve of the 2016 presidential election. Cunningham served in World War I, covered Al Capone and Huey Long, married, fathered a son, and outlived everyone he loved. As he lays dying, he begins a conversation with God and the two review his life. Cunningham realizes there were some essential lessons he missed throughout his life. We began the interview with Robert Olin Butler sharing the spark of emotion he felt that led to writing Late City. There are many sparks to a novel. One of the sparks, and probably the less, the least important of them, but the most in the moment compelling event that made me deal with the other sparks was what happened in the fall of 2016, you know, the election of Donald Trump and, and the subsequent performance of that fella. That was a, as a kind of just background event in, in the history of our country that was leading me to engage with revisiting of the so-called American century that we had passed through. It's been 20 years since um, the millennium changed. I was born in 1945 and, you know, grew up in those what now seemed truly bizarre days of my conscious childhood of the, the 50s and went to Vietnam unwillingly and grew up through all of what happened in the second half of the 20th century in this country and keenly conscious of what happened in the first half as well, needless to say. And I'm now in my middle 70s. I was 75 when I started writing this book and thinking about mortality and coming to anticipate 
or maybe even in some ways unawares going through a revisiting of a life, complex life, complexity in my personal life, a complexity in the life of the country and the world around me. And honestly, Late City brings all of that together, which I'm basically describing Sam Cunningham's state of being. Now, he's he lived the first half as well as the second half of the 20th century, or much of it. This is a mid-70s book, re reevaluating what my life has been and what the life of the country I've lived in has been. It's interesting because... You know, Sam is 115. He's on his deathbed in a nursing home. Trump has just gotten elected and he served in the First World War. He was born in 1901. So he's he's uncommonly old and he's talking to God about his life and sort of reliving it. He was a newspaper man. So headlines, I think, are very important to him. Headlines are kind of like the highlights of your life that he's going back over with God and he's trying to figure some things out. And so I was curious about your relationship at this time with with death. I, I think engaging with death is an engagement with prospect of or the feeling, the reality of aloneness. You know, we die alone. Ultimately, there may be people around us, but what we're going through, what that must be and what we expect it to be, at least, has, has got to be profoundly isolating. And at age 76, I'm, I'm, I feel, I mean, I'm physically, I'm in good shape. I know I've got good genes. My mom died at 92 and my dad died in 88. And he died at 88 only because he got tired of dialysis and decided not to do it anymore. I'm, I don't, I'm not facing yet the immediacy of death in a physical way, but that the larger sense of it is um, is there, you know. And I th- I think that maybe every book I've written is an act of an assertion of life. For a serious writer, for a literary so-called literary writer, we engage with the essence of the human condition every time we sit. You know, before our uh, our manuscript, as we as as we work, and all of that stuff is is inextricable. The life we lead, and the and I feed the birds outside the window of my writing cottage here in this in Caps, Florida, and one of these lovely blue jays flew into the window here of my cottage the other day and died, and I'm and it, which hurt me deeply, and I to hold the the body of that bird. You know, these things are all these things all accumulate for me. Uh, there, there is no answer to the question you asked that, that is a simple kind of philosophical, abstracted or ideational summary of, of a state of being or a state of mind. And that's why I say that maybe all the books I've written are all responses to that question because the antithesis of death is, is the, is the, moment-to-moment thereness of life. And the moment-to-moment thereness of life is what novelists are in the business of recording. I think, too, that with death, in a way, the opposite of death is yearning, which is something you talk about, that that it's not necessarily life or, or it is life, but 
yearning is the engine of life. And when you walk around really conscious of your death, it makes you realize like how precious life is and what you want to do and the things that really matter. And that does come back to some of your basic beliefs about craft. It's like this very fueling feeling of, of yes, what it means to be human, but also how to make the most of our humanness. How I see yearning manifesting itself in, in literary works in the literary genre of fiction, uh, I think comes quite directly into your question there, your observation. If you don't mind my backing up to put yearning in perspective, because it is a central concept to me, and, and, and you're right to bring it up. We create narratives as novelists, story writers, and all narrative goes, goes all the way back to Aristotle. You know, 23 centuries ago, Aristotle defined identified plot as being driven by characters who face and overcome obstacles to solve problems. And that's solving of a problem as what's driving the character. And in other words, characters, and, and later on in other considered evaluations of what plot is and what stories are, you know, there are other terms, goals and objectives, you know, are often used. Those are true that characters have these objectives, these goals, and those are blocked and thwarted and that, and getting around those, you know, just that's what yields all kinds of stories of all type. And, you know, and, and there are lots of works of fiction that are, let's call entertainment fiction where, where those things are, are also true. And the books are written where the goal is to win a romantic partner or solve a crime or get ahead in a career or whatever. Countless goals in in really good entertainment fiction. But I use the word yearning to identify what the literary genre tries to do, because it suggests the deepest level of goal making in the human spirit, what we most deeply yearn for. And I think it's, you know, it is a separate thing, because because whatever the surface goals are, and the, the the goals that I just mentioned in terms of entertainment fiction, you know, you see those goals at work often in literary works as well. But what makes it literary is that if that that what's on the page, if you dig deep enough into it, if you look deeply enough, where is this book really operating? Then, at that, that deepest level of goal which I call yearning, the deepest yearning is then that the central character is yearning for a self, for an identity, for a place in the universe. You know, detective fiction, you know, the goal is to, to solve the crime. Well, in literary fiction, the, the goal for the main character is to, is, to, is to find an identity, a self, a place in the universe. That's what we are all after. And why is this so in literary fiction? Because it is so in life. The flashpoints between human beings all over the world, every beating beneath, unspoken usually, but a beating beneath uh, every story in the newspaper where there's contention or whatever, all the flashpoints, race and gender and politics and uh, nationality and religion and levels of wealth or whatever, all, everything that human beings tend to get in, 
engaged with. Why are those things such flashpoints? Because every one of the things I just mentioned, what are they? They are prefabricated, immediately accessible answers to that great question. Who the hell am I? Who the hell am I? That's the question we're dealing with, that literary fiction engages with. And that's the, the question that every human being on this planet is at their very core, dealing with every day in almost every decision they make. Everything they do is a kind of act of self-identification or in search of that. And so, yeah, I think it's quite appropriate talking to me and that you identify, you advised <laughs> on that word to start with, because that's, that's what it's all about. And um, writing at this point, at my age, at, at this moment in history, needless to say, that question is, uh, is very uh, keenly present. Yeah, I think, too, that as you live your life, that that sort of yearning, what you desire, there's always something more beneath it, right? So if you, for instance, want to get a promotion, you think it's about the promotion, But underneath that promotion is maybe a deeper need to be seen or a deeper need to live your life as a whole person. But you it manifests when you're younger as this needing a promotion. But what your book highlights when you are at the very end of your life and you're looking back on that, which everybody knows, like the things you don't think about that promotion on your deathbed. You think about the people you love. You think about um, the connections that you made in your life. And so what makes a book about a death so prominent is that you, you, you cut away from like what the surface language or the surface things are about that yearning. And you get to what's like deeply underneath. And that's what your character is grappling with. The things that we that we get most that becomes the focal point for our most intense emotions. I think beating beneath that is is that is that deeper question of who am I? Because it, it, even as we choose our mates and our job and you know our drinking buddies and our even choose the buzz on that we like whatever gives us that. Those things are not the deepest level at which the impulse to go to those things are at work. I think you're right about that. A line at the end, and then I want to go back and talk about Sam's life, but he is dying. He's talking to God, and we can talk about the God aspect. But he says, I think I reported, but I did not see. I cared, but I did not do. I loved, but I did not comprehend. I'm sorry for all of this deeply but I don't even know how to properly be sorry. So he's making some real understandings about his life and putting it all together. And I think you talk a little bit about regret in there, but I'm just wondering if you want to talk a little bit about this, this line, these lines. I share his bafflement. (laughs) It is the paradox or the challenge of, of the artist. And I find as I get older, I've written 24 books and, um, and these three, uh, since I've written, since I've turned 70 are arguably the best books I've, I've written. And even as that's so my engagement with what I am writing is less and less expressible in the kind of terms that 
I used to readily and eagerly even, you know, talk about the book, the books. And Sam's puzzlement there, in a sense, you know, his, are his regrets. I, I say I don't have anything more to say about them because I, the characters I'm writing now are, are even more intensely what characters in literature tend to be, which are creatures of the body and of the moment and being of the body in the moment, also being in of their yearnings to being then of their feelings. And we make so many decisions in our lives and so many of them turn out badly or wrong or, or made without fully comprehending the things that should have gone into them. And that kind of declaration that Sam makes is almost a declaration of, you know, there's no more to be said except that I have no more to say. I mean, that is sort of the declaration. This is how do I engage? How does anybody engage with the opportunities of having thought to close your window shade at at the time of day when the birds have more trouble discerning that lighted space is not a place to fly to. Do you find that comforting at all? That almost in a way as you come to your life that you might have less to explain or less words to articulate about it? It's it's not a matter of having less to say about it. It's that the terms in which I know to say it, the terms in which I can even get my brain to work at saying it are different. But ironically enough, that is, I say it by writing these books, writing the moment-to-moment -moment life. And, and when Sam says that um, in the right in, in the book, you know, writes it, you know, speaks it in the narrative of, a, of the book. It's not like he's now going to be able to go ahead and give answers to that, sort of analytical answers or explanatory answers or psychological answers or philosophical answers. There are, what he knows is that that those terms of understanding life, you know, he recognizes that he can't, he can't go back and and do what needed to be done, but explaining it doesn't do it. And having abstract words to have said back then probably wouldn't have done it either. That the trick is to, to stay fully and engagedly and empathically in the moment with whoever is around and with you, and then to live that consciousness in, in the moment and is, the, is, the, is the only answer. And I think that maybe is what writing a book is, isn't it? Writing a novel of substance. It is the rendering of the moment-to-moment -moment life in the body and in our feelings, therefore, in the way it's actually experienced and not in order to or in the terms of analysis or abstraction or you know theory or ideas. It's um, a thing in and, of, in and of itself. And I guess that's the ultimate explanation of that passage. If anything, it's it's a matter of understanding that to let it go, that it, it wasn't really understandable in those terms anyway. This is a close book. And, and, and as you know, the book has some significant, four significant sort of turns of events at the end, uh, near the, you know, the last 68 pages of the book. And all those, if you think about, and let, no spoilers, but, but if, you, if you look at the way the book 
the kinds of resolutions, and there are four of them identifiable ones, were things that were not known become known and things that, that you would never have expected to occur do. And those things, if you look at the terms in which those things happen in the book, not one of them is based on the kind of rational or, you know, actionable understandings, you know, analytical understandings or whatever that we often expect of ourselves. And then, you know, even Sam sort of expects of himself in that or regrets not having in, in the passage you read. But the book itself then in those last four striking turns of event revelations implicitly makes that point that the real meaning of things is not something ultimately, the meaning does not reside in the abstract or generalized or ideational statement of it. It comes in the living of it, in the, in the body, in the moment. I'm really interested lately in reading more about how our intelligence resides in more than our brain, that we have intelligence centers in other places of of the body. And so I just wanted to ask you about that, about living in the moment, in your body, moment to moment, as well as your experience of writing, especially when you talk about feeling, if, if it's an embodied experience for you, and if you feel when you write that it's coming from places in your body as well as your mind. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. It is a, a, a kinesthetic feeling. Most of the revision that I do has to do with stripping the language that's just gone onto my computer screen of its abstractedness, of its of the impulse to summarize events rather than than find precisely the events for us to live through in the in the moment to moment sensual way on the page. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I spend much of most of my my time rewriting the line to line editing, clarifying, expanding. I, m- most of that is done on this very basis in driving the, the work back to that moment to moment sensual reality that is in fact our primary engagement with the world that is the process you know it's interesting that all the other art forms composers and and visual artists and ballerinas and whatever i mean all the other art forms However much they think about it, they theorize about it, they talk about it with each other. When it comes to creating the art object, the object itself is entirely of the senses. It is movement, it is color, it is shape, it is form. Literature is the only art form where our medium itself is is not sensual. In fact, it is intrinsically, inescapably, it is not. In fact, most words are abstract. Most words distance us from the events of the body. And the literary artist's most demanding challenge and necessary challenge, although an awful lot of would-be artists just give up the challenge, try to convince themselves it's not really a challenge at all. Abstract art isn't abstract at all. It's color and form, you know? For example, visual arts. So abstract writing is indeed abstract. It takes us out of our bodies. That's a, the most demanding essential of working in this art form. To, to create a story out of words, you, you, you do have to summarize some things. You do have, you might have a, 
something be labeled or whatever, but those things then come through the moment-to-moment -moment sensual experience of the narrative voice, that there is, a, there is an ongoing voice speaking to us, which is itself a sensual experience. But what the voice says needs to be profoundly, deeply, centrally sensual. And that's the great challenge of this art form. So back to a little bit more of, of the brain and at least the thinking mind. And I know the emotions come in when you're doing this. But Sam was born in Louisiana. And in the novel, there's kind of a few main things that get focused on. There's his childhood and his relationship with his father. There's meeting his wife he becomes a reporter in Chicago and he covers Al Capone and then he goes down to Louisiana and covers Huey Long and then he has a son and he's a father. And so these are the main things you pick out of life. And when I was reading it, I kept thinking a little bit about Bullet in the Brain by Tobias Wolf and how you pick out like these very, very salient points of life. So how did you pick out these points that would have the most resonance and was that obvious to you or was it sort of trial and error? It's trial and error, in, but it's not that I write them out in full and, and then cast them away. The trial and error is in the kind of dreamstorming imagination that I bring to the process of planning a book. And I guess in a way, I, I'm also going to dodge the question by saying it, I'm not making the decision I think he is. <laughs> it's what, a, what in his life comes out of the because there were, you know, I know I know a lot more about American history than Al Capone and Huey Long. You know what they have traditionally represented. I see something else in them that I think is 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 where uh, I'm focusing on in Sam and that. And I go back now to to what we talked about earlier, the yearning that is at the heart of literary fiction, that the characters who yearn and, and that the yearning is for self, for identity. Both Al Capone and Huey Long, if you look at those, for example, because in, in, in a way they kind of represent for, you know, the, the, you know, just how could, how did you come on those two? Obviously there are plenty of other people in the American history that, Though as a newspaper reporter and editor, he could, on a surface, justify his choosing almost anybody. But if you if you really if, if you look at what I what I focus on in Capone and in Long, is is that very thing that these guys that what you see in the renderings of them and what Sam sees in his engagement with them, and what Sam is being driven by everything in the book is that yearning for a self, for an identity. You know, Al Capone, almost everything he said, he, he is working very hard to try to come up with a kind of scheme in his head of how what he is doing is sort of morally justified, that he is desperately trying to find a self, an identity that he can live with, that he can, that is, that really gives him a place in the world and Huey Long as well and all the other events and the ways in which Sam experiences the world war and the way Johnny Moon, a character 
you know, a fellow fighter in the American in the in the trenches before America gets much involved in the war. You know, everything they do is being driven by the that deep yearning to define who they are. It's the self-definition. It's the identifying themselves in some way, especially when there is some much larger scheme of things, you know, involved, like a war or like the gang wars or like politics or whatever it is. Everything in the book is there with a kind of focus that leads us to to understand what I see as that central aspect to who we are. Do you ever find that when you go back to rewrite and edit, and I've, you know, you've talked about, you know, you have to go back to that central place, back to that yearning, but that you feel different. And I'm not talking about the yearning of the characters. It might be your mood. And so you come back and you're in a different mind frame and you can't get that yearning back or you just can't look at it the same way. Yeah. I mean, that's when I go back, in a way, the momentum of where I've been, the, the more of those kinds of decisions I make as I write the book, and I presume that's what you're asking about in the process of writing, right? Every decision I've made so far helps focus the next decision. But what I have to do in order to maintain that ability for the book to continue to, to, to mature into this organic object is I, I will often go back and read the book and especially... I don't know if I probably haven't mentioned uh, Graham Greene, the great British novelist, once said that all good novelists have bad memories. He says, what you remember comes out as journalism, what you forget goes into the compost of the imagination. And, um, you know, I've got a pretty good bad memory. And so what I do then, you know, because that comes into play in what you're asking about, I, I need to come back and read the book over from the beginning to where I am now. That, that is a, I frequently will do that so that I can re-inhabit my character in as he or she has, has evolved to the point where I am now having to make new decisions for them. Do you have any sort of religious inclination? Like, I don't think God, you know, in this book played a religious role at all. But I'm curious about your decision to have it be God that he talks to and the um, the impetus for that. Yeah. And, and, and I, th- I think the crucial thing, this is not a point out, this is not a conventional God. But I do assert that he's God and, and or they and and um, and it certainly fits Sam's. He's not. He's never been much of a religious person either. But it certainly, it is of his time, and of his culture. And honestly, I I think I believe that this God in this book exists exactly in this form. If anything, I think ultimately the I would suggest that some of the surprises in the book there are some. I would ask the reader to actually take those seriously, at least in a metaphorical way. We need to get rid of the, the word God has gotten so misused. I forget who, who said that God is simply man talking in a loud voice. That word has summoned up a lot of problematic connotations f- for us. But is there a kind of sentience behind the universe, you know, uh, I don't know. We don't have to know. 
I'm obviously not meant to know, but we keep discovering um, things down at the, you know, the nanoparticle level of existence. And any physicist has got that that you could that you would talk to, go interview a physicist, and they are baffled as hell about what they are only just now learning about the deepest structures of the universe. I think the fundamental question is, is there something resident in each of us that in a totally, in a way we absolutely cannot imagine might persist after what we know to be physical death? You know, I don't think we know enough to say that that can't be true. I think it can be. And and then what that suggests just as we cannot answer that question fully, what that then would suggest about what other layers there might be to what we perceive as the universe, that those are questions even farther beyond our can. And so, uh, I, you know, we don't know a damn thing about it. And I think anybody who says that, you know, they know anything about what's, what's out there or what's next, or even whether out there is even the right way to say it, is making a leap of faith one way or the other. Is there anything else that you want to say about this novel that we didn't talk about before we get to the final questions? I don't know. I, I you know, I, I just, I am, um, I think it's, it, it could well be anybody who has been reading all of my books. Um, and I know, I know my longtime editor at Grove Atlantic, I think, I think he would agree with this. He said something that would suggest that he would agree with this. And this is, this could be the best book I've written. And um, it's certainly for me, the, closest to to my deepest self that uh, you know my deepest vision of the of the universes I've got the fact that uh, I have I have a hunch sounded a lot more yammery and hesitant in this interview than many others most others because I've I've gone off script now after writing this book and coming to age 76 more and more I used to be able to talk about my books and, and this is a, a tribute to you too, by the way. You've asked the right questions, and I, and knowing your work, I've felt comfortable to not give you the boilerplate that I have given every other reviewer, uh, interviewer, um, and especially with this book. So I'm just saying that Late City is everything that I've uh, that I could know about writing books, and about what the world is, and about what human beings are, about the human heart. There's some revelations in it that I think now that I've written them and I've gone back and some months later and looked at them, um, I profoundly believe in them. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure. This passage is is from, uh, and it's interesting you asked a religious question and I'm going to go to the uh, to this, but um, it's, it's, it's not in a theological way or religious way, but I'm, it's a passage from the book of Judges in the Old Testament, King James Version, of course. Before I say it, I, you know, D.W. Griffith, he um, is credited with inventing modern film technique, you know, and rightly so, all the things we think of, of close-ups and long shots and montage and cross-cutting and all this stuff, it's all there in his work. He credited one man with teaching him everything he knew about film. And the guy he credited was Charles Dickens, who died decades before film was even invented. And, and the fact is that 
that great literature has always been a kind of cinema of the mind and that all the things we think of as film techniques have always been present in literature. And that has been deeply influential to me, that, that the, the, what I just said. And, um, and uh, so the passage I'm going to read to you is, is uh, from the Book of Judges. It's self-explanatory, except for the name of the character of Caesarea. He's a bad guy who's bringing his armies to face Israel. Uh, and he's the guy who asked for water at the beginning of the passage. And I just, and I want you to just hear the film of it. Okay. Blessed above women shall jail the wife of Heber the Kenite be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer, she smote Caesarea. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet, he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet, he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. The mother of Caesarea looked out at a window and cried through the lattice, why is his chariot so long in coming? Okay, that's the passage. And, hey, you know, the pure cinema of it. That, that, the, he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. That's, that's slow motion violence, a la, what, Sam Peckinpah, you know? He's falling forever. And then that wonderful cut, that wonderful bit of montage, what they call in the film, without any kind of words of transitional device. He went, he fell down dead. The mother of Caesarea looked out at a window. We cut. I mean, the, just the film cuts. You can see the, then you see the lattice work, the shadow of it on her face, you know. She says, why is the chariot in so long in coming? So, and then of course, you know, in fiction, it's filmic, but it it gives it gives it makes the inner life of the of human beings fully filmic as well. So that's my that's my passage. Can you read something you wrote that was difficult or tricky to do or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, and you know, I want I did I did um, I, I often keep some of my cutout parts. But I'd rather just read you the opening of Late City, which I rewrote, I don't know, 30 times at least to get just the right balance of things. Again, thinking of needing to establish a lot. And by the way, the moment to moment sensual experience is also a matter of voice as well. We, you know, it, it, it's not, it's, it's cinematic, but it's also... It's also the cinema of of the of the narrative of the of voice, uh, where the where the the uh, we hear the voice and 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 can sense and see a person. Anyway, I've had to balance all that stuff. So it's just the it's the I'm just going to read the very opening of Leeds City, and I think that as I say it, I wrote it many times, rewrote it many times. There's a copy desk in my brain with a gooseneck lamp and a pot of rubber cement and a coffee mug full of Dixon pencils. Let's edit this at once. Not precisely my brain. I am separated even from that, it seems. Ironically so, as I feel a clarity inside me now that I haven't felt for a long time. 
The copy chief is at the desk as well, hunched there, composing a headline for the story that now is unfolding, not in my brain, but somewhere else. He hands it to me, triple deck. Mountebank wins. Editor-in-chief begins to die. I've been watching. For years, I've been watching the television screen floating near the ceiling beyond the foot of my bed. Tonight, they thought I was asleep for good, accompanied by a solitary figure in the darkened room, vague to me, sitting on a chair at my bedside. The screen lit before both of us has also just gone dark. Where I lie, the time is a quarter to two in the morning on November 9th, 2016. But at this moment, I am somewhere else. Do you want to share why you chose that a little more? Well, the angle in is terribly important to get his voice. It was the part, as I said, I, I, I wish I'd saved the, the many um, passes at it that I made. Um, but it was just rewritten, rewritten, rewritten. And because it was, and it often happens that way at the very beginning, because uh, I might get the first sentence comes to me, but it's a matter of finding the voice, especially here in this first person voice. I'm, it, it is a 115 year old man who has been through all of the first, you know, for the same reason that I said this book is the, the nearest to me and the most important. This voice, therefore, must also be a very old man about to die. Okay. And so to find his voice was the thing. And and every sentence, every, every, everything that comes out of his mouth, I I had to re I had to hear it and hear it again and hear it again and sleep on it and then hear it again the next morning to to find just exactly how it worked. And and then not let him get go off into ideas. I mean, there's a lot of visual here, you know, pot of rubber cement to, you know, to the chair at the bedside um, and just to find the ways to keep, to keep us grounded in a place while also then trying to, to, to give us a sense of the, of the, of the historic moments that's happening and, and, and the forces that are beginning to gather in him. So, you know, it just, there's so much going on here. And um, to get it balanced and to get the voice and to, and to do it all through, not my own voice, but the voice of, of Sam Cunningham. And, and I did not know Sam. I had not heard him say anything to me yet. And when I was talking earlier about, about rewriting and having to reread, I had nothing to reread. I had no... This was Sam talking to me for the first time. And so even as he was springing out of something in me, so to match what was going on to the page and what was really roiling around in me that had to be said but had never been said before, you can imagine what a challenge that is. Where do you write? I live in my town of one. I live in a historic historic home uh, built in uh, was, was the uh, in 1840 here in the panhandle of florida and it was at the center of a plantation and it's a beautiful old home but there's also a cottage a separate cottage behind and a little to the right of a uh, little left of the house and that that cottage is where i go to write that's my writing cottage and um i've written 14 books here. 
in the last 20 years, actually, since I moved in. Um, so that that's it. And I think I mentioned earlier, I, I can look out my window and see my birds. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, and I'm sure all probably everyone you have spoken to in the uh, in the past uh, 19 months or so has invoked the coronavirus is <laughs> affecting that answer. And uh, I think um, in, in a way, I, I think I've been going to my writing as to its essence, you know, as, as the place to get away to, instead of having to get away from it is for at least the last 19 months, I've been getting away to it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Oh, I've got several people I tend to 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 keep up to date on the book, but but the one that I'm this kind of the central one because he's the one I most consistently go to, and and he's probably the person I'm I'm closest to in the world anyway. Actually, a former student of mine, who is now a wonderful novelist himself. You need to talk to him sometime. His name is Spencer Wise. His book, The Emperor of Shoes, was published by HarperCollins um, a couple of years ago. He's got a new novel that he's just finished. And um, Spencer's a, a, a dear friend, a kind of surrogate son, and 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 the guy that um, you know I, I, I keep most closely in touch with to show my work. As I say, there are a couple others, too. Um, a, a dear friend who's um, known for 30 years, also had been in the army, not with him, but in, in Robert Townsend, a good friend of the one wonderful Vietnamese American writer, uh, Lan Cao. I, I let her, I, she's been reading for last year or two of my, my books. So I had, you know, a little, little coterie there. How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> Honestly, um, Rejection of manuscripts and of publishing, uh, I've been fortunate. It's interesting. I had all of that concentrated. I, I was originally trained as an actor at your alma mater, by the way, Northwestern. We're both alma maters of Northwestern. I was in their theater school many a moon ago. And then, uh, you know, went off to war. When I came back, I wanted to be an actor. Then I wanted to be a playwright because I wanted to, because I was interested in theater. I wrote a dozen got awful full-length plays, uh, went off to New York, came and commuting, began commuting on my, on the Long Island Railroad for an hour each way every day, uh, from Long Island to Manhattan, where I became, was the reporter and then the eventually editor-in-chief of a business newspaper. And while I was doing that, I was writing, because I wanted then to be a fiction writer, and I and I had the only time I had to write was on my lap, and this was before laptop computers. So I wrote with a legal pad on legal pads with a drafting pencil on my lap on the Long Island Railroad. Five novels that never got published, rejected, 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 rejected. Forty-four short stories that never got published over a period of you know. And, in New York and then in Chicago, oh, 10 years or so. So how did I deal with rejection? I wrote five novels and 44 stories that did not get published. I, I, I just somehow decided that I, you know, 
rejection did not mean I wasn't going to do this. And so I, and then, and then, lo and behold, um, the sixth novel got published. Um, and on his publication day, and the November 11th, which is Veterans Day, this year will be the 40th anniversary of the publication of that novel. And on that day, the one of the most famous and, in, and infamous, because he was a tough guy in terms of, pub, of, of editing, of, um, sorry, reviewing, Anatole Braillard on the publication day of The Alleys of Eden gave, gave it, the, the book a rave review in the New York Times on the day it came out. And um, honest, I've been very fortunate and, and maybe it's my good novel is bad memory. I don't, I, I've not had a lot of rejection since. I've always been very, very fortunate, but I had a lot. <laughs> I got all my rejection over with, uh, you know, um, you know in, in those, uh, with those five novels and 44 stories. And what is your favorite word? Oh, you know what it would be, don't you? Yearning. Yearning is the word. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you for asking me on the show. It's been a, a, a real pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Robert Olin Butler, author of the novel Late City. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Chris Offit. We talked about his novel Country Dark, Veterans of War, Violence, and How Fast the World Can Change in One Lifetime. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Please write me. I love hearing from you. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. It counts. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Richard Powers, Annie Murphy-Paul, and Alice McDermott. I want to send out a huge thank you again to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week, and that is the truth. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you so much for listening.